Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Let's get right to the panel because we have a lot again to talk about uh, today. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is this team's senior reporter, the AJC senior reporter, Tamar Hellerman. Uh, Tamar, we're going to talk to you about uh, the latest in the special grand jury because that's been your special beat. Uh, In the meantime, how are you doing today? Good. Just getting back from a long weekend away and in a special grand jury time, that feels like a lifetime. Yeah. You know, it's always tricky in a political season to for political journalists or journalists covering politics or or things related to politics get away. But uh, so you found that out as you tried to escape to the beach for a few days. Riley Bunch is uh, with us. She's public policy reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting for GPB. How are you, Riley? Doing good. And we're just, what, two months out from the election? So I feel like we're not going to get many vacations as reporters here coming yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Chauncey Alcorn uh, is here. He's a reporter for uh, Capital D, which is a newer digital publication that uh, fills an important uh, uh, role, uh, I think, both in the state and nationally, and that is covering uh, uh, news of concern, particularly to black communities across the country. Chauncey publishes uh, on the Capital B Atlanta website. Um, and so we're very glad always to have you here, Chauncey. Always happy to join us to join, Bill. Thanks for having me. And we are joined by uh, Charlie Hazlett. Charlie Hazlett's blog, Trouble in God's Country, is just one of the most important ways to keep track of what data tell us about the state of the conditions in the state of Georgia, particularly in rural Georgia. And we're going to talk about a very important uh, piece that you've posted pretty recently, uh, Charlie, about death rates and birth rates across the state. But in the meantime, thank you, Charlie, for being here. Charlie, do you hear me? All right, we'll work on getting Charlie's sound in just a second. Um, let's do this tomorrow. Let's I start am, by looking at anything. the link. Well, we hear you now, Charlie. Charlie still doesn't hear us, Chase. Um, tomorrow, um, let's start with uh, some news from the special grand jury. We know that Brian Kemp had gone to court to block his, to quash the uh, subpoena calling for him to testify in front of Fonnie Willis's special grand jury, or at least delay it until after the election. And uh, we learned yesterday that Judge Robert McBurney, the busiest judge in Georgia, had agreed with Kemp that his uh, testimony should be delayed until after the election, but said, no, your claims of executive privilege or anything else you're claiming about being exempt from testifying are simply not going to hold water. You're going to have to testify. Yes? Yeah. And uh, Governor Kemp's lawyers have cited several different reasons for why they thought he shouldn't have to testify. The main one being sovereign immunity and basically that that the governor as a representative of the, of the state 
can't be kind of brought to court without its own consent. Um, and there are all sorts of kind of dense procedural arguments around that. And Judge McBurney said, no, um, not only do I not buy this, um, you're not being sued. You're just a witness seeking to be interviewed. Not only that, I'm not going to let you appeal this ruling. Like you will have to come testify. Um, I'll let you have it not after the or not until after the election, uh, but you are going to have to come in. He did recognize there might be some privileges with things like attorney client privilege, uh, but there's still plenty of things that prosecutors and jurors can ask the governor. And um, I think that the main thing they were worried about, though, was having to come in before the election. Remember, the governor has a tricky balancing act that he has with uh, conservative voters and particularly conservative Trump voters who feel like he did not do enough um, in the, the fo or, uh, following 2020. And so he's trying to strike a delicate balance here with them. And so I think testifying in the midst of that was something they did not want to have to do. Uh, Riley, just to amplify in one uh, point that Tamar made, uh, it, it might have been likely that the Kemp people could have tried to appeal this up to the state Supreme Court, but um, the procedures, the, the, the legal procedures in the state are such that, that Judge McBurney would have to approve them taking it to the state Supreme Court, and McBurney was very firm, as Tamar pointed out. He said, no way. You're going to have to testify, Governor Kemp. But here's the question, uh, Riley. Do we have any sense of how and what impact this could have on the timing of Fonnie Willis's grand jury? There's a story this morning in the Jolt, which in which she says, uh, "I've been I've, I got a lot of people fighting subpoenas that don't want to come and testify. My hope is I'm going to be able to wrap all this up by the end of the year, but a lot of that's going to be dependent on all these actions uh, by people who don't want to come in before us." Well, absolutely, because we're seeing pushback from a lot of the witnesses you wanted, right, Senator Lindsey Graham. Um, but we did get a sense of her timeline yesterday that we haven't had yet during a press conference um, on an unrelated issue. She was asked about the, the grand jury investigation, and she said there's about 40 percent of witnesses still left to be interviewed, about 40 percent left to be done. So that means 60 percent is done, which is a big chunk, but there is a lot left. And I think a lot of that has to do with these key witnesses who keep dragging out their testimony, right, dragging out um, when they're coming in for this investigation. Um, but in terms of the ruling yesterday, uh, very significant, I think this was kind of a partial win for both sides, right? Like Kemp gets to delay his uh, testimony until after the election, um, and but he still has to come in. And in, in terms of the DA's office, it may be a partial a win for her too, because they have been trying so hard to keep this out of being politicized. Um, I think it was a good ruling yesterday, um, but it will drag out the case longer. So meanwhile, Chauncey, um, the, the Kemp uh, effort to quash the subpoena was in McBurney's court here in the state of Georgia. Lindsey Graham continues to try to fight the subpoena uh, for him to testify in federal court. The 11th District Court of Appeals has put at least a temporary hold on Graham's subpoena until it can be uh, more fully uh, argued out in court. But yesterday, Fonnie Willis... Uh, issued a strong filing, put out a strong filing saying that Lindsey Graham's argument, legal arguments for not testifying are uh, just plain wrong-headed, to put it in, in my terms, not the legal terms. And so it's going to be interesting to see whether Graham's going to end up having to testify. 
Yeah, it's, uh, as I've, I've said a few times before, Lindsey Graham is lucky he's not up for re-election in this situation. None of these Republicans want to be seen as crossing the president, while certainly um, uh, Donald Trump, that candidate, have not fared as well in Georgia as they have nationally. Um, Trump is still a, a cult figure on the right, and this, you know, they don't want to be perceived as uh, slighting him. And this is uh, acting as a drag or has been on the uh, Republicans broadly and uh, might be jeopardizing their chances for um, retake, uh, retaking the Senate in the fall. Um, Charlie, let me play you some sound from Lindsey Graham that Chase McGee pulled for us this morning. Um, it's a little bit long, but it really captures in many ways what a lot of the people who are fighting the subpoenas uh, feel about being called to testify. So let's listen to it. And then, Charlie, I want to get your reaction. You'll hear at the very end, Lindsey Graham say something that has become kind of a lightning rod for controversy. But let's listen to the entire soundbite. Well, if we let county prosecutors uh, start calling senators and members of Congress as witnesses when they're doing their job, then you go throw uh, out of kilter our constitutional balance here. I've got a good legal case. I'm going to pursue it. But I just want to sort of end in this note. You love the law. I love the law. I've never been more worried about the law and politics as I am right now. How can you tell a conservative Republican that the system works when it comes to Trump? Look at what happened with Crossfire Hurricane. It was a joke of an investigation. People lied and manipulated the evidence. Look what happened to Hunter Biden. They gave him a complete pass, apparently, and the social media outlets in this country suppressed information that could have mattered. And if they try to prosecute President Trump for mishandling classified information after Hillary Clinton set up a server in her basement, they literally will be riots in the street. I worry about our country. So uh, there will be riots in the street, Charlie. We'll get to that in a minute. But before that, um, let's remind our listeners that what Lindsey Graham is saying about um, um, his not believing he should testify is that the calls that he made to Brad Raffensperger, in which he questioned uh, how they were dealing with the legitimacy of absentee ballots, was done in the service of his work on the, at the time as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and therefore is legally protected. We hear in that sound, though, another example of people saying, you know, a local DA shouldn't have the right to call all of us before a special grand jury. I, you know, I, I, I'm... I would be dubious of that argument. I mean, it seems to me um, maybe Senator Graham will prevail with the 11th Circuit. It's a pretty conservative court. But um, uh, it, 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 it came, would come as a bit of a surprise if everybody agreed that he was acting as chairman of Senate Judiciary or ranking member, whatever he was at the time, when um, uh, when he made those phone calls to Secretary of State Raffensperger, um, that strikes me as a as a tough sell to tell you the truth, but but we will we will see. Um, I've, I've been wrong before. You know, Tamar, let's let's talk about it again. We'll we'll hold off on riots for just a moment, but but you know, Fonnie Willis yesterday and and new, and numerous times before that uh, has said this is not a political investigation. We are doing everything we can to create a buffer between our, what we're doing and the, pol- and the politicians running for election or re-election today. And yet in his, in his statement, Lindsey Graham politicized everything about it. And, and I just want to point out a couple of things. Crossfire Hurricane, 
was not a disaster. Um, in fact, it found a lot of links between uh, the uh, Trump campaign and uh, Russia, but it was the way in which it was framed by the then attorney general that created the impression that it went nowhere. Hillary Clinton did turn over her servers to the Department of Justice, unlike Donald Trump, who does, did not, who reluctantly turned over files uh, to the Justice Department at Mar in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. So there were a lot of aspects of what Lindsey Graham said that took it right into a political realm and uh, are uh, clearly going to cause an awful lot of Republicans and supporters of Trump out there to once again question what's happening in Fulton County. It was always going to be impossible to divorce politics from this proceeding. Uh, district attorneys in Fulton County have to declare a party in order to run on the ballot. So Fannie Willis is a Democrat in a county that voted for Joe Biden uh, with like something like 72% of the vote. She is investigating the behavior of Republicans, including some of the most prominent Republicans in the state. I'm talking about Burt Jones, our lieutenant governor nominee, David Schaefer, our uh, chairman of the state Republican Party. She's seeking to get the testimony of all four top Republicans in the state, Jeff Duncan, Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, Attorney General Chris Carr. No matter what she was going to do, it was going to be framed as political, especially as close as, you know, the closer we get to the election. It just becomes impossible. It's such a tempting thing to to kind of pull in, especially when you're a Republican. She's such an easy foil. Um, you know, you have Trump, he kind of can't help himself. It's such an easy target, a, a black DA in a Democratic stronghold. It was always going to be impossible. And then when, when Kemp didn't want to testify, then you see Stacey Abrams coming in with an ad. Um, Judge McBurney has done everything he can to protect this investigation, to protect this grand jury that he's overseeing. That is why he disqualified D.A. Willis from investigating Burt Jones. Um, and it is worth saying he hasn't quashed any subpoenas. He's refused every single person, every single case that's come before him and his uh, counterpart on the federal bench, Lee Martin May. They've uh, refused to quash subpoenas, and that's a notable thing. Every single person who's been asked to testify so far has had to come in. Um, but this is an election season, um, and it might get even harder. Should this go past the midterms, as I'm expecting it will, um, then we're going to start getting into the presidential season, especially the closer yeah. she gets to Donald Trump, the more and more impossible it is to, to not have this be framed in political terms. So, um, Chauncey, I, I do think we should talk about this on both sides of the political aisle. Um, I'm not sure that Stacey Abrams helps the DA um, when she has made statements uh, condemning Kemp for not being willing to testify, as she and her campaign have done. What's he afraid of? What's he got to hide? Whatever she had said. Um, I understand the instinct to want to do that uh, in the heat of a political campaign, but that certainly doesn't help the D DA saying this is not a political investigation, Chauncey. Well, uh, Stacey Abrams uh, and the DA have different jobs here, and uh, I, you know it's politically savvy for her, uh, obviously, to, to take advantage of the situation um, and put really uh, Donald Trump has put the Republican Party, in particular, Brian Kemp, between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't want to come out um, and you know condemn him uh, publicly because there's so much uh, still support for uh, Trump amongst the grassroots, but he also has tried to take credit as uh, the governor, as uh, Lady Abrams says pointed out, um, for, you know, setting up the Trump and not committing treason. So it's kind of a double-edged sword with Trump. Um, it's, and timing is so critical here because I think 
after November, it'll be easier for Kemp and others uh, who are frankly sick of Trump and kind of the want to move on from him. I think uh, politically, uh, he's uh, sometimes it's, he's somewhat more cost, uh, costly than he might be worth for a lot of uh, Republicans nationally, as well as in the state. So it, I think once if they can delay these hearings as they've already done so far to after the uh, election, you might see them, you know, dump Trump. Um, there's particularly Brian Kemp, who's already not on Trump's uh, list of favorite people. Riley? You know, I just want to reiterate a point that Tamar and Chauncey already pointed on is the impact at the national level, right? So Republicans are, they're trying to win back House seats. They're trying to win back one Senate seat in Georgia right now. So not only is this investigation playing out in Georgia and impacting Georgia, it's impacting the National Republican Party overall. So we're definitely going to see um, more, you know, politicization from them at that level. But I, the, and the Republican Party, as we move past the midterms, might look a lot different. We might have Donald Trump as a presidential candidate, right? So I think this is going to play out in the long term um, on the national level. That will be something really interesting to watch. I wanted to follow up on something Chauncey said, and, and you know, he makes a great point kind of the, about the cross-cutting political wins, especially when it comes to Democrats and their calculations here. There's obviously the short-term political gain that somebody like Stacey Abrams could get from hitting Brian Kemp for not wanting to come and testify before the election. But I think they also have an interest in the legitimacy of this investigation in the eyes of the public. And how much do they really want to kind of politicize this or even just kind of score political points when they can? Um, I think there's been a temptation, especially after Judge McBurney disqualified the Fulton DA's office from looking into Burt Jones to kind of quietly talk about Robert McBurney um, and some of his credentials or his decision makings or just anything like that, I think it could ultimately potentially undermine the investigation. Uh, but I understand there's also kind of the heat of the moment on the campaign trail and people want to jump on every twist and turn if it doesn't kind of go their way. And so I think there, there is some calculating that needs to be done about is, is the short term gain worth it if in the long run it kind of hurts the legitimacy of the probe in the eyes of the public. Yeah, yeah. Thank you uh, for, for that and Chauncey for heading us in that direction. All right, Charlie, we don't know what Lindsey Graham had in mind when he said there'd be rioting in the streets uh, if Trump is indicted. We don't know if he was provoking people to act or whether he was stating what he thinks is a fact and which may be indisputable that there could be rioting in the streets. But the motivation really doesn't matter, does it, Charlie? The fact that a sitting United States senator uh, suggested riots in the streets is provocation, no matter what the intentionality behind the statement. Yes, uh, absolutely. You just you made the point that I was going to. He uh, it, by uttering those words, um, he arguably uh, was sounding the call and giving um, people um, like the the folks who showed up on January six. Uh, permission to come into the streets and 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 do their worst. I um, uh, I'm a little skeptical that that's going to work, but but we'll see. But it was I I think history will record that that was a an egregiously irresponsible thing uh, for for Lindsey Graham or any politician to say. I'm, I'm I was surprised. 
You know, Chauncey, it does, it did for me at least bring to mind that now infamous Trump tweet come to Washington on January 6th. It's going to be wild. And there was something of that flavor in the uh, Lindsey Graham comment. Well, this certainly feeds into, and I saw um, earlier today this uh, poll um, put, uh, published by Guardian that says 40% of Americans um, uh, feel that there's going to be a civil war in the next uh, uh, few years within a decade. So there's uh, certainly been a, a sense of unease across the country both on both sides of the aisle about the state of politics and the gridlock in, in um, D.C. and the inability to like govern and get things done. And this certainly does not help that. Um, I think that there is an element of folks on the right who have grown frustrated with you know, the January 6th hearings, with the raid in Mar-a-Lago and all the things that are happening that have uh, you know, somewhat jeopardized the uh, the gains that the Republicans were looking to make in November, and uh, feeling like that the you know the system or the establishment, whatever the, the word is for it, is kind of set against them, and this does not um, you know help that or certainly feeds into it. Riley, we should say that Lindsey Graham is trying to walk back his remarks a bit, but they're out. I mean, you, you can't walk back something like that. Um, and there are those who are critics of his who suggest another motivation for why he said that, and that is a shot across the bow at Merritt Garland. You better be careful about trying to indict a former president of the United States. I mean, there's tons of undertones that we can take away from it, but have we not learned consequences to our words yet? Right. We, we have had that with January 6th. And I would even point to the incident with the Georgia Guidestones. You know, we we see that there are very real actions that happen after things that politicians say. And it, it surprises me that even the Republican Party is not walking around their words as carefully right now during this election. So just to finish this off before a break tomorrow, uh, you were on the Hill during uh, some of Lindsey Graham's tenure in the United States Senate. He's always been a wild card. He's always been a guy who lets his emotions run away with him, who makes comments that he may very well think to himself, why did I say that? I, I'm letting my mouth lead my brain. He's always really been the sort of person who can make statements like there'll be riots in the street. But it's a much different political time. Um, much more fiery, much, you know, we don't have the, you know, before there wasn't the, the very searing recent memory of a riot on the U.S. Capitol. Um, there wasn't a Donald Trump who could kind of command the rapt attention of millions and kind of bring thousands of angry people to the, the doorstep of the Capitol. So it was a, a very different time when tensions weren't as high. Um, and so I think especially in the aftermath of January 6th. I think there is a question, are we going to say comments like that that maybe before didn't resonate as much or, or kind of were more of a distant threat? And now I think there's just a lot of wounds from that day. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We'll be back in a minute to talk about a lot more. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, before I, I get back to the panel, uh, let me remind you all, tomorrow's uh, a newsletter day, Political Rewind newsletter day. If you're not a subscriber, you can uh, join us by going to gpb.org slash newsletters. Uh, just a little tease. I'm writing a blog that kind of relates to the fact that Democrats in Georgia think they have a good shot at winning the 2024 Democratic National Convention, which reminded me that during my career, I was fortunate enough to be able to cover nine national political conventions. But maybe the most important convention I went to was in 1960, the Republican National Convention that nominated Richard Nixon. And I tell the story about how I ended up as a 13-year-old boy at that convention and how it got me thinking that politics was a great thing to cover as a journalist. So subscribe and join us at the Political Wine newsletter. Charlie Hazel, we got a lot more politics to talk about. And by the way, let me say Chauncey Alcorn is uh, here from Capital uh, B, Riley Bunch from GPB uh, News, and of course, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC. But Charlie, before we go back to some uh, really uh, hardcore political stories, I think it's worth spending a few minutes on the latest data that you have crunched about births and deaths across the state of Georgia. And I thought the piece you published on the Trouble in God's Country blog is really worth talking about. The headline is, a new record of 123 Georgia counties reported more deaths than births in 2021. And the statewide gap between births and deaths is the narrowest on record. Um, talk to us about the implications of that, Charlie, and what the data shows us. Um, well, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's, uh, this is a continuation of a trend that started a little over a decade ago and has been exacerbated by not just COVID in the last couple of years, but uh, an increasing number of, of, uh, of drug overdose fatalities primarily, as I understand it, from fentanyl. Um, but the, the, the overall trend is one where you're seeing births declining, especially outside the metro Atlanta area, and, and, and deaths on the increase. And it, it could, it, frankly, we're not that far from those lines crossing I'm going to be a little surprised if that actually happened, but it's starting to look real possible. And the, the, the problem or one of the problems is that the, the counties, the parts of the state that are suffering more deaths than, bar, than births uh, are also seeing out migration and a decline in population. And it's, it's part and parcel of the hollowing out of um, a, a, a good chunk of rural Georgia. Uh, and there are all manner of, of economic problems uh, wrapped up in that, and, um, uh, and there are no easy solutions. I've been looking lately at how to, how to stitch together a bunch of economic and health and, um, uh, and educational data uh, and, and rank the states, rank the counties, uh, against national data, um, uh, and the, what I'm seeing is a picture where a disproportionate number of Georgia counties um, land at the very bottom nationally on way too many metrics 
it's a discouraging picture. I frankly don't know what you do about it. Um, Riley, uh, Charlie points out that uh, the counties reporting more deaths than births were, as he said, really, in sparsely populated rural counties. There are more than half a dozen of, uh, of them that are bigger regional uh, uh, centers. Uh, for instance, Floyd and Walker counter- counties reported the largest number of net deaths in 2021. Um, uh, Bibb County were with Macon, uh, Glynn County, Lawrence County, Thomas and Doherty County, all big population centers where the uh, death rate uh, I- increased dramatically and there were more deaths than births. And, and Riley, there is a national trend that birth rates are slowing down as death rates pick up. And this raises significant questions, first about the state of Georgia and the health of our state, but then nationally, where we're headed as birth rates uh, decline so dramatically. Absolutely. And, you know, the first thing to go in a rural area if they have low population and low birth rate is the birthing center and then the hospital and and then maternal health death rates spike. Right. So this is just a domino effect that we see in rural areas and also ties into the economy, you know. Um, But I think one of the really startling things that um, pointed out was the drug overdoses. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I jotted down these numbers from your article um, before we started, but there was a 72% increase of drug overdose deaths um, from 2019 to 2021. That's huge. That is absolutely massive and could be um, a factor as to why we're seeing in kind of more of the larger regional areas, um, such as uh, increased death rates. Chauncey? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Um, we had a sim- I'm from Ohio, and uh, we had a similar uh, phenomenon unfolding when I was uh, in the early 2000s when I was finishing school, and I can date myself. But um, you see this, what they call brain draining, where people basically, um, whenever you see a decline of birth rates, it tends to be young people are not staying there and not investing in the community. Um, they leave because they can't find good jobs and they go other places. They go to college and they leave the community and don't come back. And that's what you're seeing a lot of. It's also an issue that uh, the Democrats have been hammering for a while, which is uh, Medicaid expansion and the lack of, of resources um, for hospitals there, um, meaning that you know, there's no sense in opening a hospital, which is why you see a decline in medical services in the, in the rural areas in the state. And uh, that obviously is not going to lead to positive health outcomes either. So I think the key is uh, uh, one of the keys um, that would probably help is expanding Medicaid, allowing, um, you know, that would give some incentive to uh, folks, uh, medical practitioners to open facilities in these areas where there's certainly a need and um, they would have a client base if they could if they were ensured that the clients could afford and were able to pro- to pay for their coverage. Um, in addition to, you know, that kind of is one of those uh, things that um, you have to get creative in government to try to spur um, investment in these areas. But uh, I think that's one of the big keys is Medicaid expansion. You know, Tamara, I, I wanted to turn to that before getting back to more, you know, partisan political issues in the campaigns, uh, because these are the kind of real uh, imp- these are the kinds of important issues that face a state, this state that uh, are, are a little too nuanced in some ways, uh, are a little bit harder to, to get to the core of, and, uh, and maybe don't engage people the way that the hot-button issues do. But, but it's important that we be able to talk about this sort of trend, uh, regardless of whether it becomes important in a campaign or not. 
Yeah, it might not be the sexy thing that happens kind of so quickly and abruptly like Roe versus Wade or something like that, this, this grand jury investigation, but it's something that ha is happening in the background. And Riley touched on it when it comes to maternal mortality and birthing centers and that sort of thing. But I mean, think about kind of the effect of a declining in per, or a population on tax dollars and the, the federal money that goes back into a community. There's all these formulas that the state and the government, the federal government use to give things like healthcare dollars, like education dollars, like infrastructure dollars um, back into a community. And so if a population is declining, it only like kind of exacerbates itself. Um, you know, you don't have as much as much money to invest back into the population. So it becomes even less attractive for a family who might be thinking about moving to a more rural area to want to go there. And it it really just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. All right. Um, Chauncey, um, because we know that COVID-19, now monkeypox, um, conditions of poverty, uh, uh, and other indicators of health have had a disproportionate impact on the black communities across the state. This is a good moment for you to talk to us a little bit about a woman who you profiled uh, on the Capital B Atlanta website. Uh, many people out there won't know Latasha Brown, but she's the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, uh, which uh, she says is a not nonpartisan uh, voting recruitment tool, voter recruitment tool. Why did you choose to write about her? And why has her career working on voter information and activation campaigns so important today? Great question. Latasha is a fascinating person, um, a great conversation. Um, she grew up in Selma, Alabama, you know, was one of the uh, um, main cities in the South uh, that was key in the civil rights movement. And she's one of the uh, voices of change and leading voices in this uh, growing and changing, diversifying electorate. And uh, particularly in the South, uh, Black Voters Matter has been instrumental, along with me, Georgia Project, Fair Fight, and other groups like that, uh, in uh, mobilizing Black voters in an area of the country where it never really made a lot of sense that you've seen since the civil rights movement, the South has largely been um, uh, Republican territory, uh, by and large. Um, this is also, we know that African-Americans disproportionately vote Democrat, um, and we know that um, a huge chunk, um, I don't want to say half, but it's, it's pretty close to uh, of the Black population, 14% roughly of Americans live in the Southeast. So it never really made sense that this is an area that's like Republican territory. Part of the reason was because a lot of Black people live in rural parts of the state and are not have never really been engaged in voting. So Latasha and, and um, Cliff Albright, uh, the co-founder of, of Black Voters Matter, have been like at the forefront of engaging these voters, going into rural areas and basically helping them figure out the problems that they have, um, which is something that a lot of political operatives fail at doing. They always are focused on um, getting folks um, to the polls um, when election time rolls around, but they don't necessarily solve the problems and address the systemic issues that the people are facing um, um, 365 days a year. So um, Tasha has been instrum instrumental in doing that um, since founding um, BBM um, years ago. And uh, it's paid off dividends, obviously, in Georgia, particularly where you've seen the first uh, two Democrats elected to the U.S. Senate um, in a generation with uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, and uh, obviously um, the competitive races that you're seeing now for governor and other places. So we'll post a link 
on our social media platforms to your interview with Latasha Brown. But, but Tamar, here's one of the things that Latasha Brown told Chauncey in uh, his interview with her. She said, what we're hearing from black voters is that they want to see more action on the agenda they voted for. They want to see movement on criminal justice reform, economic relief, and those issues they care about most. What we're also hearing from black voters is a nuanced understanding of how the Republicans have aligned themselves with white supremacists. I believe black voters understand the critical nature of what we're facing right now uh, politically. You're welcome to comment on that specifically. But let's also point out that what the polling is showing us so far is that Stacey Abrams isn't reaching, is underperforming among black voters. So I'm particularly interested in those comments by Latasha Brown and how they might be heard by, say, the Abrams campaign. Yeah, and I believe Stacey Abrams is especially underperforming among black men. Um, And that was a group that that surprisingly broke for Trump a little bit more than people thought. I mean, still far from a a majority, but all Republicans have to do is peel off something like five or 10 percent to make a a real difference. And especially when we're talking about a state where the presidential race was decided by less than 12,000 votes, even having something like that, having a a difference in five percent of black men for one candidate over the other could be the, the difference in an election. Um, and especially without a presidential race at the top of the ticket, that can sometimes be a struggle, especially for Democrats and their kind of core constituencies. Uh, I know the Stacey Abrams campaign is working hard on that, uh, but it'll I'll be curious to see how they respond to that, how they make sure that black voters and especially black men plan to go to the polls this fall. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. And when we come back, let's talk more about campaign politics on Political Rewind. Riley Bunch, yesterday I made a comment on the show that got a lot of reaction from some of our listeners. And very simply, what I said was, I get that most Republicans uh, celebrated, or many Republicans celebrated, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. They believe themselves to be pro-life. They're glad that abortion is being restricted or outlawed in some states. But at the same time, it struck me as uh, a, a mistake that they showed no compassion for women who are now struggling with a whole new situation. How do we get the health care we need. I'm not suggesting how do we find ways to support uh, a, a family if we don't have the economic resources and the like. Um, and people thought that I was suggesting they should suddenly become pro-choice. I wasn't, just that I thought maybe a more nuanced approach to what this meant for pregnant women would be important. And now we're seeing some evidence this is happening in some states. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing is Um, a fear of the Republican Party of maybe a slight miscalculation, right, in the support for um, these very, very strict abortion bans. Um, I think, you know, this is just kind of speculation, but there might be some concern in the Republican Party, especially in Georgia, that the overturn of Roe v. Wade, that the the, um, implementation of Georgia's new abortion law has pushed some voters away, right? And, and, And we see that on the Georgia campaign trail because we don't really have candidates doing victory laps over this issue. We don't have Governor Kemp doing big events, um, you know, cheering the implementation of Georgia's abortion law. So we're seeing Republicans across the country as well dial it back on their rhetoric around this issue, um, kind of sweep it under the rug a little bit. On the flip side, this is 
Democrats stronghold for the election coming up, right? We have, this is this, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, the implementation of Georgia's law has given Democrats the opening they need to win over some swing and moderate voters and mobilize their base. And we're seeing that from Stacey Abrams with very extreme personal appeals to women and women voters on this issue. And it's going to be a huge, 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 huge play out um, for the November campaign. Uh, Tamara, I, I, the reason I said there are some Republicans who are sort of seeing a different approach to how they talk about uh, restrictions on abortion was a Paul Waldman piece in today's Washington Post. Um, Waldman reports that Blake Masters, who's a Republican Senate nominee in Arizona and one of the real hardcore right-wingers running for the U.S. Senate, has already scrubbed his website of statements that say he is, quote, 100 percent pro-life. Uh, he used to have uh, information on the website advocating for a fetal personhood amendment, which he is now uh, removed from his website. And there are others who uh, are doing similar things to try to uh, soft pedal a bit um, their hardcore pro-life positions. You know, I've covered politics for more than 10 years now. And a general theme, I'm not just talking about abortion now, but campaigns and power in general, is that it's very easy to run against something when you're not in power. Uh, you like to talk about how you will run things if you get the keys to the kingdom. It becomes a lot harder when you have to defend your actions once you do have that power. And there's such nuance to it. And you might, you know, I, I think Americans in general, we tend to we know what we don't want, but we don't necessarily know what we want sometimes. And that's kind of why you see this pendulum effect in Congress, especially kind of back and forth between Republicans and Democrats every couple of years. And abortion is one of these issues for Republicans. For so long, they were able to just kind of criticize the status quo. They did not have the keys to the kingdom. Uh, they were able to kind of appeal to the base because they didn't have the power. It was an easy kind of way to get your red meat kind of voters out to the polls. It's a lot different now that they do have the keys to the kingdom. They do, you know, Roe versus Wade is done now. They've been able to set abortion policies. And I think they now realize that there are many voters who don't want outright bans on abortions. They don't want those things that many Republican primary voters do want, especially independent voters who I think they, they very much rely on. And so, um, it's going to be interesting to see where all of this lands, but it's not so black and white for most voters. And I think that's why you're seeing this change in rhetoric from some Republicans. Charlie, um, immediate, in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court decision on Roe, we heard some Georgia political leaders saying that, uh, legislative leaders saying on the Republican side saying, we're going to go further. We are going to have, fight for an outright uh, ban on abortion in the next legislative uh, session. Uh, we've got to make sure that our personhood amendment uh, passes uh, uh, a court muster. They were really coming out across some of them, like a Burt Jones, with very hard positions supporting uh, the uh, anti-abortion forces. I don't think that's happening, as Riley and Tamara pointing out, on the campaign trail right now, Charlie. I, when you were recounting that, it called to mind that scene from True Grit, uh, where the character says, "That's bold talk for a one-eyed fat man." Uh, good, good luck with that with anybody. I, I, I just to pick up on what tomorrow was saying, uh, the Republican Party with this issue isn't just the dog that caught the car; it's a Chihuahua that caught a Greyhound bus, and now they don't know what to do with it. 
except maybe talk tough. I'm going to be stunned if, um, if frankly, if Brian Kemp lets them uh, at the legislature uh, move forward with even even more restrictive uh, policies. Uh, and and when when Burt Jones and others engage in that kind of rhetoric, that's got to be music to Stacey Abrams' ears um, and yeah. and other Democrats. So uh, I, you know, I, I think that they've got themselves a problem. Chauncey, real quickly, uh, Maya King of the New York Times was on the show the other day. She had written a, a profile of, of Stacey Abrams and her evolution in terms of choice. She had been fervently anti-choice earlier in her career, and she came around to believing choice was an important uh, thing for her to deal with. But one of the things that was interesting that I wanted to ask you about in her piece is that Abrams says that she has a unique position to be able to go out and talk to black voters about abortion rights. And that that's important because in the black community, abortion is not as acceptable. Choice is, is a tougher issue. And so her ability to go out and talk about it, she thinks, is, is very important. Yeah, one of my um, uh, Capital B colleagues wrote about this earlier this summer. There had been some shift in the, um, in the black community on the issue of abortion. A lot of uh, black uh, folks are devout Christians and uh, um, evangelicals even, and who have uh, uh, conservative views on issues like um, gay rights and abortion. But you've seen um, in the last decade or so some of that softening as this has become more mainstream and um, and um, as this has become more mainstream in pop culture. What's been interesting to me to see nationally, though, is this uh, framing. It used to be Democrats on the defensive about issues like inflation and things of that nature. What we've seen over the last few months is their uh, Democrats have successfully kind of built this a uh, right wing boogeyman to say, well, you might not be happy with the way things are in terms of the economy right now, but if you know if Republicans get elected, it could be the end of democracy as we know it. And the uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade plays into that, um, where people are saying, well, wow, if we give these folks power, look what they've already done. What would they do if how much further would they go on issues like voter suppression and, um, you know, making it harder for people to vote on issues just in general, like uh, cultural war issues, whether it's uh, CRT, where they're banning, you know, making it harder to discuss issues of race and class or things of that nature. So this play, uh, plays into a lot of the fears that um, folks on the left and independents have about what Republicans will do if they regain power, you know, at the state level and the federal level. All right, let's take on one final issue before we come to the end of our show today. And tomorrow, this kind of uh, takes us back uh, to the uh, Fulton County Special Grand Jury, but it's larger than the Fulton County Grand Jury. Um, Coffee County is now under investigation by the GBI, uh, and uh, and what and and Fulton County Special Grand Jury is looking at what happened down there. And just to very quickly summarize it, um, after the twenty twenty election. Um, Sidney Powell, who became one of the faces of the Trump conspiracy theory about the elections, went down to Coffee County. It's a large, it is a Republican county. I think it voted 70 some percent for Trump. Um, but they went down there with a, 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 an IT company from Atlanta and opened the voter files, took out confidential information, recorded it, and then distributed it, in some cases, to people who had absolutely no right to this confidential information. And now they're under investigation 
um, for having done that. Talk to us about what this story, why this story is significant right now. Sure. I mean, the, the reason why we're talking about it in terms of the Fulton County investigation is that one of the folks who uh, the special grand jury is seeking to talk to is Sidney Powell, the attorney who is working closely with the Trump campaign in the aftermath of the elections. Um, her subpoena request notes that she coordinated with Sullivan Strickler to obtain elections data from Coffee County um, and mentioned that she was involved in similar efforts in Michigan and, and Nevada. And of course, Fulton mm -hmm. County doesn't have jurisdiction in, in Coffee County, Georgia, but it is important because it appears to be that the Fulton DA's office, they, they appear to be looking at potentially building a broader conspiracy or racketeering set of charges when it comes to folks allied with former President Trump. And they, the, the way they mention it in their subpoenas, they talk about a coordinated multi-state plan by the Trump campaign to influence or meddle in, in Georgia um, in, in the aftermath of its elections. And so that's why they want to talk to Sidney Powell. That's why we're starting to talk about Coffee County, um, kind of how deep does this kind of coordinated effort go. Um, and so a very interesting late stage development here. Uh, Riley, a lot of this goes to uh, this conspiracy theory about the Dominion voting machines being uh, vulnerable to having votes overturned. I voted for Trump, but it was recorded as a, a Biden vote, um, which was an absurd conspiracy theory uh, in the first place, the question is, Sullivan Strickler, the IT firm, says, gee, we thought what we were doing was perfectly legal because it was off, you know, it was uh, officers of the court, attorneys like Sidney Powell, who told us we could do this. I'm not sure they're off the hook because of that. Yeah, I'm not sure how well that argument is going to hold up. But how <laughs> ironic, right, the Republican Party and these lawyers are saying that there's so much fraud, so much fraud in the election, and they're not finding any evidence, but they themselves are going to a county and accessing confidential voter files. Like, the irony of the situation is insane. Um, we're going to go into that in a little more depth tomorrow because Mark Nisi wrote a really uh, a good piece for the AJC in which he pointed out that while Republicans in the Fulton County delegation are looking to uh, uh, at the possibility of taking over the Fulton County election mechanisms uh, and running them themselves. Uh, they're not doing it in in uh, Coffee County. And of course, Coffee County is a Republican county, votes largely Republican, whereas Fulton County tends to vote Democratic. And we'll get into that a little bit more on our show uh, tomorrow. We're basically out of time for today's Political Rewind. Um, Charlie Hazlett, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for Trouble in God's Country um, you're not publishing a weekly or even necessarily monthly, but when you do publish, you really give us important information, and I'm grateful to you for that. Chauncey Elkhorn, capital B, thank you for being with us as always. Riley Bunge, you as well. Uh, we really had a, a, a good conversation with you. And Tamar Hallerman, it's never too early to promote an upcoming show. The next time I see you on Political Rewind, next Tuesday, you and I are going to talk with Dana Milbank, the Washington Post columnist who's got a brand new book out in which he says, if you think Donald Trump was the start of the Republicans' move toward disinformation and far right-wing politics, you're forgetting all about Georgia's own Newt Gingrich. It's going to be interesting to talk to him next week. So tomorrow, I'll look forward to that. We're completely out of time. Uh, Chase has given me a hard signal to get out of the show. I'm Bill Nygut. Back again tomorrow. Take care. 
Stay healthy, everybody.